The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, March 21st. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. A tense standoff continues in Toulouse, France today. Police have surrounded the suspect in Monday's shooting at a Jewish school there. The victims were buried today in Israel. It's very hard for everyone here because we all feel related to what happened in France. And later in the program, the Big Ben Foundry, where bells are still made with old-time ingredients. The loam is made up chiefly of yellow London clay, goat's hair, horse manure, sand and, and some straw. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, presenting Murdoch's Scandal. The powerful media mogul's reputation, future, and dynasty are in peril, resulting from business practices in his media empire. Tuesday, March 27th at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Authorities in France say they have found the suspect in the killings around Toulouse, but they have not arrested him yet. The man is a young French citizen of Algerian descent. He is still holed up in his apartment in Toulouse. Hundreds of police officers have surrounded the building, and they're trying to get Mohamed Marat to surrender. Marat is a suspect in the shooting deaths of four people at a Jewish school two days ago and in the deaths of three French soldiers before that. With the standoff underway today, President Sarkozy spoke at a memorial service for the soldiers. La mort que nous sommes rencontrés n'était pas celle à laquelle ils étaient préparés. Sarkozy said that the men were killed in a terrorist execution meant to bring the French Republic to its knees, but he vowed that terrorism will not fracture national unity in France. Chris Bachman is reporting for the BBC from the standoff in Toulouse. He says that the suspect was traced through an email address he used to get in touch with one of his victims. Then police investigators scoured the Internet to trace his physical location. They went through 700 possible profiles, 700 telephone records, 700 internet addresses, and that's how they basically narrowed it down. And then on the Tuesday night, they really had the right person, they thought, and uh, the decision was made that he was going to act again very soon, something which um, he's admitted in his conversations today with mediators, with uh, negotiators, that he was going to go out and kill another soldier and try and kill two policemen today. So the order was given last night to get him. Hence, they arrested his mother, they arrested his brother. They're all apparently part of a group which, while the others can't be accused of actually being um, killers, are part of an Islamic group or at least a fundamentalist fanatics. Okay, so they, they say, and he is calling himself an al-Qaeda operative. The, the watch list, though, that the police had would seem to have led to him more quickly. Why has it taken so long for police to find him and narrow the names down to this one particular suspect? I think that part of the um, story will unfold in the days and weeks ahead. How does someone who was on a watch list, who was known to be have the profile of someone who could possibly be very, very dangerous, they said himself, 
He does he done armed robberies. He liked to watch decapitation videos of U.S. citizens amongst them uh, and Europeans who have actually had brutal endings like this at the hands of Islamic fanatics. And uh, the investigating anti-terrorist judge said to me that um, he'd gone from being a, a delinquent who went around armed robbery and being violent to become a political fanatic and then ending up basically as a, serial, as, as a killer. Is there any evidence, though, Chris, that this suspect does have an affiliation with a dangerous group, al-Qaeda, or any other group? Is there any evidence that he's really part of a wider terrorist campaign, or is he a solo actor? It's difficult to say, actually, at this point, and the judges are being very cautious on that. He says he's definitely got a link to al-Qaeda, that he was, he's been to Pakistan, he's spent several spells in Afghanistan, but there's no guarantee about that. He could be just a lone gunman who became a fanatic and wanted to get revenge on Western society because he felt he didn't fit in here in France. He's um, French-born, but of Algerian descent, and it seems like he has a very long criminal record. The, uh, the, as you say, this is all unfolding not too far from where you are right now. Can you describe what it's like to be there and also the conversations that are going on sporadically between the suspect and police? Yeah, they go on and off. I mean, basically, he said uh, a few hours ago now that uh, after lunch, he was prepared to hand himself in. That hasn't happened. He says that he doesn't mind killing, but he has no intention of um, committing suicide himself. So that's the situation. After the initial raids, which, of course, left three police officers injured, they found explosives in his car, which they had to blow up. And uh, they believe he could have many other weapons. They just don't know at this point. So basically, it's a waiting game now. They're really keen, from what I can understand from the authorities here, they're really keen to get him alive. They could easily shoot the way in now and kill him. There's no question about that. They have 300 people. He can't go anywhere. But they want to get him alive. That seems to be the clear, clear objective everyone's pointing out here. What, what's this man saying was his motivation? He has, a, he has a grudge against Western civilization, and he says that he is to revenge the, the sufferings of the Palestinians. That's his main argument he's using. And he saw soldiers, he saw the French police, and he saw the school for people of the Jewish faith as part of that kind of establishment that he wants to get revenge against. But the negotiator says that his story he seems to be changing hour by the hour. Okay. Chris Bachman, thank you. Thank you. The bodies of those killed in Monday's attack on a Jewish school in Toulouse were laid to rest today in Israel. The victims were dual citizens of both France and Israel. They were buried at the main Jewish cemetery in Jerusalem. The world's Matthew Bell was there. The bodies of the three young children and 30-year-old father were flown to Israel from France last night. Wrapped in white prayer shawls and dark cloth, they were carried on the shoulders of mourners to their final resting place in the large Jewish cemetery at the western entrance to Jerusalem. The weather was sunny and warm, but the two-hour ceremony deeply somber. Relatives of the victims, both of Israel's chief rabbis, along with Israeli officials, all addressed the crowd. Some broke down with emotion at the podium. Despite the overwhelming sense of tragedy, Israel's Minister for Public Diplomacy, Yuli Edelstein, had high praise for French authorities, asked about reports of the suspected killer sharing the ideology of al-Qaeda, Edelstein said he was not surprised. Their raison d'etre is to kill Jews, to kill everyone who is not part of their perverted and terrible ideology. But it's our mutual task to make sure that they don't succeed. And the French government and the French security forces gave a very good example on that. I sincerely hope that this example will be not just a result of terror attacks, but will happen in order to prevent the terror attacks. 
Many of those in the crowd were from Israel's tight-knit French-speaking community. It's very hard for everyone here because we all feel related to what happened in France. Gary is a 24-year-old student from Paris. Four years ago, he came to Israel and decided to stay. We all have family in France, and everyone's hoping that they won't be hurt when some kind of tragedy like this is happening. You just can't think about anything, but join me. I think that's the place that Jewish people should be. Here in Israel? Yeah. Others said they agree this week's murders in Toulouse strengthen their belief that the only real way for French Jews to be safe is to leave. Rabbi Mordecai Ben-Shushan is originally from Nice in the south of France. Now he lives in Jerusalem. His message to the Jewish community back in France is simple. I think that all Jews have to come here to Israel. It's uh, fundamentally the state of the Jewish people, and they have to understand to to prepare themselves to to come to Israel. The French foreign minister, Alain Juppé, traveled to Jerusalem today and spoke at the funeral. He appeared to disagree that Jews aren't safe in France. Each time a Jew is attacked in France, he said, the whole nation is targeted. He said anti-Semitism goes against the values of the nation. The suspected killer reportedly told French negotiators that he was attempting to avenge the deaths of Palestinian children. In response, Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad condemned the murders as a cowardly terrorist attack. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. The murders in Toulouse have inflamed an already controversial presidential campaign in France, one that's filled with rhetoric that some have labeled racist. Today, the far-right presidential candidate, Marie Le Pen, said it was time to wage war on Islamist groups that she says have flourished under the Sarkozy government. The president himself has previously lashed out against immigrants. Sarkozy has spoken about excessive immigration and threatened to reduce by half the number of non-French allowed into the country every year. The world's Jerry Haddon has more from southern France. In the wake of the shooting two days ago, most of France's presidential candidates suspended formal campaigning. But that didn't mean they kept quiet. J'ai tenu à les réunir ensemble pour montrer que le terrorisme. In a televised address to the nation yesterday, President Nicolas Sarkozy spoke movingly about uniting French society to strike back against terror. But Francois Bayrou, a centrist candidate for president, is asking French citizens to strike out against something else. Speaking to followers yesterday, Bayrou said that French political rhetoric ahead of next month's elections has taken a nasty turn to the right including from the president himself. And Beru seemed to imply that the talk made violence like that in Toulouse more likely. Pointing a finger at this group or that, he said, just because of their presence in the country, their origins or their social situation, just adds fuel to the fire. The rising rates of violence and stigmatism in France are unacceptable, he said. Stigmatism as in stigmatism of immigrants. It was a direct shot at Sarkozy, who recently said that France can no longer offer jobs, homes, and schooling to undocumented immigrants and their children. Benjamin Abton is with the French anti-discrimination group SOS Racisme. He agrees with Beru and says attacks like the Toulouse shootings do not happen by accident. They come after a lot of speeches in France, but also elsewhere in Europe. Stigmatization of part of the population, especially Muslim people, and it doesn't come by chance, it comes after a long process. 
Immigrant groups in France point to the president's track record even before this campaign as proof of that process. They cite Sarkozy's failed call for a national debate on French identity, which they saw as a thinly disguised attack on foreigners, or his disparaging remarks about young, mainly North African minorities from suburban ghettos. Sarkozy recently said that integrating them has been a failure. But SOS Racism's claim that all this can somehow be linked to the Toulouse attacks is unfair, says Sarkozy ally and member of parliament Jacques Millard. This is pure rubbish. You are not only exaggerating, you are just trying to, let's say, use intellectual terrorism when we say that there are problems in France with, of course, illegal immigration, with insecurity, and this is very dangerous what you play at. Certainly before the shootings, these issues, illegal immigration, crime, were resonating all over France, including here along the wide-open French-Spanish border. There are no border agents here, no passport checks. President Sarkozy says bringing back controls would cut down on what he calls the immigrant problem, and many nearby residents like the idea, even though virtually none of the immigrants who cross in actually stop and settle here. Montréal is the first village you get to when you cross into France. It's a tiny place that depends on seasonal tourism. It has one main street, one bar, a post office. Outside a nursery school here, again, days before the killings at the Jewish school in Toulouse, one mom who wouldn't give her name said the open border nearby scares her. She wants stricter controls. The foreigners coming in scare her, the way they mistreat each other, she says. The woman wouldn't say which foreigner she was referring to, and it's impossible to know whether the school shooting has caused her to change her opinion. But if she was scared before, she might be more so now, especially if she caught President Sarkozy's comments at a different French school yesterday. Sarkozy said that though the assassin targeted people at a Jewish school, he could have just as easily targeted any Frenchman. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Southern France. Coming up, playing the green card, how opposing sides in a hydroelectric dam debate in Canada are claiming to be more green than the other. That's ahead on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The chimes of Big Ben are an iconic sound of London, a sound embedded in the history of the British capital. Big Ben itself was made in a bell foundry that's more than four centuries old. This year, the foundry is experiencing a bit of a renaissance, as the world's Laura Lynch reports from London. No prizes for guessing the first thing you hear upon entering the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. The entryway has a replica of a cross-section of Big Ben, more than six feet tall and more than nine feet wide. It was created right here in 1858, but the foundry's history is much older than that, boasts managing director Alan Hughes. The fact that we've been doing this in the east end of London for well over 400 years means that we must be doing something right. On the somewhat grimy foundry floor itself, the men who craft the bells hew to ancient traditions, shoveling a pile of what looks like black dirt into a giant mixmaster. Nigel Taylor knows the list of ingredients well. This is the loam, and the loam is made up chiefly of yellow London clay, and 
goat's hair, horse manure, <laughs> sand, and, and some straw. There's horse manure in there? Yes. Only a very small quantity, but yes, it's, it, it is there. <laughs> and how old is this recipe? Oh, well, the recipe is, well, certainly well over a thousand years old. The monks in England used to, they recommended wild boar manure because there were plenty of wild boar available at that time. Uh, now there are a few wild boar, but not enough. So we moved on to horse manure. Taylor knows just the right amount of water to mix with the loam and just the right mix of molten copper and tin that will be poured over the mold to make a bell. He's been a bell founder for three decades after deciding against a career as a tax inspector. He knows the intricacies that go into creating a bell that will ring loud and proud for centuries. Big Ben, Taylor sniffs, not even remotely worth all the fuss. Um, Big Ben is famous for, because, because of its sound, but there's no way you would describe it as a fine-toned bell. It's just a large bell. So do you cringe when you hear it ring? I've got used to it, <laughs> as the world has got used to it. But, but you wouldn't describe that as a fine-toned bell. What gets Taylor and the other workers here much more excited are the two special commissions they're working on this year. This week, they're putting the finishing touches on a series of eight bells to be rung as part of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee River pageant. They're named after senior members of the royal family, with Elizabeth, the largest, and Henry, Prince Harry's formal name, the smallest. They'll be ringing out across the Thames in June as they float downriver on a specially built tower atop a barge leading a flotilla of a thousand boats. And then there's that other bell, a very big bell. You're having quite a year here. There's a, there's a project that you're not allowed to say much about, but there is another project. Well, there is. I mean, we have this thing called the Olympic Games, which has to be somewhere, and we're better than London. And if it's going to be London, we're better in the, than the East End of London, which is the greatest part of London. I mean, we're in the East End, so it has to be the greatest part of London. And in fact, the, the, um, the Olympic site is only five miles from here. So, yeah, we're, we're providing um, a bell um, for the Olympics, and, uh, which is incredible. And no, I can't say much about it, but we are incredibly excited. In fact, Olympic officials have released some details. At 27 tonnes, it will be the largest bell in Europe, twice the size of Big Ben, and it will be rung at the very opening of the Games. It will also be inscribed with a quote from Shakespeare's The Tempest, Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises. Alongside these two high-profile commissions, the foundry workers are busy with dozens of other bells destined for churches and city halls, along with smaller bells for town criers, bell choirs, and pubs who need to signal last call. For the men who make them, there's an enduring pride and a sense of history. They crafted the Liberty Bell here, and Nigel Taylor won't hesitate to defend the work of his foundry forefathers. Apparently it had a very rough crossing, and we think they clocked it. That is, they tied a rope to the clapper and pulled the clapper up onto the bell and held the clapper against the bell, which damped the sound, and eventually it cracked, and it was recast locally. And the present bell is a very poor casting, it's riddled with flaws, and of course, inevitably, it cracked. So it's not your fault? No, not our fault. During the royal wedding last year, the bells of Westminster Abbey peeled across London as the ceremony ended. Among them are two bells that were cast in the foundry in 1583. Alan Hughes says that demonstrates what a strange business he's in, 
A product well made may never need to be replaced. In a sense, a bell is like a wine glass in that it's, it's very brittle, which means if you treat it badly, um, it might only last 30 seconds. But if you treat it well and carefully, it will last forever. For the Whitechapel foundry, business is good. The oldest manufacturer in all of Britain is in the midst of a bit of a bell-building boom. And that is reason enough for them to smile when the chimes ring out this summer. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in London. See the Queen's Diamond Jubilee bells being forged in London and visit the foundry floor at the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. You can see a slideshow and video at theworld.org. Americans may soon get to hear the sounds of the National Orchestra of North Korea. There's news today that the orchestra from Pyongyang might tour the United States sometime this spring. If it does happen, it'll be historic. But apparently there are a few gazillion details to work out first. The world's Carol Hills is following the story. How likely is this tour to happen? I think it's pretty likely. The group that's organizing it is called Global Resource Services. They're a humanitarian group based in Atlanta, and they say this tour could happen as early as April. The tour would start in Atlanta, where this organization is based, and then go around to seven American cities. The the main detail seems to be getting visas issued from the U.S. to the musicians from North Korea. That seems to be the holdup. And this group itself, what's its tie to North Korea? Well, the group Global Resource Services, they're actually a small humanitarian group which has a long history in North Korea. They do a lot around food security and education, and they do a lot with actually cultural exchanges. In the past 14 years, they've sent three different American music groups to North Korea. One was a contemporary Christian band, Casting Crowns. They've been there twice. They actually won a Grammy in 2006. And another interesting thing is that last summer, they actually brought over the conductor of North Korea's National Orchestra. This is the same guy who will conduct if the group comes over, which I think it probably will. So they brought him here to the States. He was here as part of a cultural exchange. And they're saying that this visit by the National Orchestra is sort of a reciprocal arrangement for these other groups going to North Korea to perform. Actually seems to fit also into other cultural exchanges with North Korea, the uh, uh, New York Philharmonic perhaps being the most prominent when they performed in Pyongyang back in 2008. Absolutely. And just last week we had a South Korean conductor with a North Korean orchestra, not the National Orchestra, but another one, and they were performing in France. So this seems to be fertile ground, this kind of music diplomacy. The world's Carol Hills following the news about North Korea's National Orchestra potentially touring the United States this spring. Thank you, Carol. You're welcome, Lisa. The digital difference in the Greek economy coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a rising politician in India who's both revered and reviled. He represents both the potential for enormous progress economically, etc., but he also represents some of the worst that this country has to offer in terms of the religious divide. Narendra Modi's story, Ahead on the World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The catchphrase for President Obama's energy policy these days, 
All of the above. The president believes the U.S. should pursue all energy options, including fossil fuels, conservation, and renewables. But the phrase could just as easily refer to all the energy sources above the border with Canada. That's because in recent years, Canada has become America's biggest supplier of imported energy. Yesterday, we reported on Canada's quiet emergence as an energy superpower. Today, we've got a look at one of its latest proposed mega-projects. It's a plan for two new hydroelectric dams in Labrador in Canada's far northeast. As Emma Jacobs reports, supporters and opponents are both using green arguments to make their case. There's no maintained trail down to Muskrat Falls, just a steep, slippery path worn down by visitors and crossed by roots and fallen trees. It ends on gigantic rocks that jut out over the impressive falls that cross the breadth of the Churchill River. The Churchill is a powerful river that runs more than 500 miles through the largely untouched forests of Labrador in far northeastern Canada. The interior feels about as far as you can get from just about anywhere. But it's at the center of the ambitions of the government of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. From our perspective, it's the cornerstone of of our province's energy plan. Let's go over Bennett, a project manager for NALCOR, the province's energy authority. There's already one big dam a couple of hundred miles northwest on the Churchill. Now, NALCOR plans to build two more on the river, including one at Muskrat Falls. The two sites at the Lower Churchill uh, collectively represent just over 3,000 megawatts of capacity together. They would be the largest single hydroelectric development under consideration in North America today. Some of that power would flow east to the province's population centers on the island of Newfoundland. But even there, the population is pretty small. So after the province takes its share, it would sell the rest of the power to other parts of eastern Canada and the northeastern United States. The Lower Churchill Project would bring badly needed jobs and income to this remote and sparsely populated region. But many locals say they want none of it. These guys have got tunnel vision, and they got no concern at all for Labrador. Alex Saunders is a native Inuit whose family was one of the first to settle in the area of Muskrat Falls. He now lives in Labrador's Hub, a town of about 7,500 people called Happy Valley Goose Bay. He and other opponents here say the project will disrupt the water levels below the dam and flood and pollute the river valley above it. Saunders is in the hospital with chest pains, but he gets energized talking about the project. He says people on the island of Newfoundland and elsewhere would get most of the benefits, while Labrador would bear all of the costs. If Newfoundland government wants to produce hydropower, why don't they do it on the oil in Newfoundland? And if the United States wants to buy power, why don't they disrupt their own power? Why are they coming to us? Some of the potential customers for the electricity are asking the same questions. New York State could receive a chunk of the renewable power from the project, but some environmental groups are opposed to it. The state's chapter of the Sierra Club says it would continue the region's reliance on huge, concentrated, and remote energy production, rather than local renewable resources like wind and solar that can be produced on site. But experts say those new energy sources can't yet meet the region's big appetite for electricity. It would be nice to have distributed power and have everyone's house generating all the electricity they need, But um, we are a very long way from that point. Pete Wilcoxon is the director of the Center for Environmental Policy at Syracuse University. He says it will take decades for enough solar, wind, and other local renewable resources to come online. And uh, in the interim, we're going to need a lot of centralized power. But Wilcoxon says that new power does have to be as low carbon as possible. 
And for supporters, that's one of the biggest arguments in favor of the Lower Churchill Project. Gilbert Bennett of the Provincial Power Authority argues the dams represent a big source of clean energy that can fuel the economy while cutting greenhouse gas emissions. If we displace coal-fired generation in the marketplace, that's about 17 megatons of coal per year that disappear. And Bennett says opponents in Labrador who focus on the dam's impact on the Churchill River may be missing the bigger picture. The climate change caused by pollution from coal and other fossil fuels is already affecting Labrador. You see that the winters are later. You see that the amount of rainfall in December and January is greater. The freeze-up in the river system is later and the thaw is earlier. To supporters, that raises the urgency to build a big, new, low-carbon source of electricity like the Lower Churchill Dams, the first of which could start to come online in about four years. But opponents are unmoved by the green argument for the project. I go and sit on the riverbank and listen to the birds singing. Daphne Roberts lives below Muskrat Falls in Happy Valley, Goose Bay. She hikes and fishes along the Churchill and worries the fish and the scenery will disappear. And she has a message about the river for the power company. I was up there just only two days ago, and I went into Gull Island as far as I could get, and I sand on the riverbank, and I said, you're not going to get it. We're going to fight it. It's not going to happen. Opponents of the Lower Churchill Dams hope they can block its approval by Canada's Public Utilities Board. But if the province prevails, construction could start later this year. For The World, I'm Emma Jacobs, Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador. What do you think America's energy future should be? Should the U.S. buy more low-carbon hydropower from Canada? You can join the conversation at theworld.org or on The World's Facebook page. The Summer Olympics in London are a little ways off, but the process of selecting which athletes will compete is well underway. Each nation chooses the men and women it feels offer the best chance of bringing home the gold or the silver or bronze. And we'd like you to name the three Muslim nations that have traditionally excluded women from their Olympic teams. That policy may change this year, though. These three countries are expected to send female athletes to the Olympics for the first time this summer. Not yet written in stone, though, but the Summer Olympics in London could be the first ever in which all Olympic countries have at least one female athlete competing. So, can you name the three Muslim countries we're talking about today? We'll hand out virtual gold medals if you name all three. India is the world's most populous democracy and an important U.S. ally, so it's in America's interest to know about a politician who some say may be India's leader one day. He is Narendra Modi, the chief minister of the western state of Gujarat. The 61-year-old has been called India's most admired and most feared politician. Time magazine recently put his face on the cover of its Asia edition. Well, that cover photo has hit a raw nerve among some Indians, particularly Indian Muslims, both in India and here in America. Reporter Anu Anand is based in Delhi, and she says that Narendra Modi was at the helm in Gujarat back in 2002 during a tumultuous time in the state. Horrific religious violence broke out in the state and Hindu mobs went on the rampage as a result of uh, killing of some Hindu pilgrims and a thousand Muslims, it's estimated, were brutally killed. Some of them hacked to pieces literally and burnt alive. So he was there at the time. He has never, ever been uh, convicted of any crimes related to that violence, but 
It's been alleged over and over again that the Gujarati authorities were complicit in the violence, that they turned a blind eye to it. And rather than ending his political career, 10 years on, Narendra Modi remains a very popular, much admired uh, chief minister, very successful. He's turned Gujarat into a an extremely business-friendly state, uh, top industrialists court him. So that gives you an idea of why he is so loved and also so detested. Okay, so in terms of being so loved, we should say that he has as well burnished his own reputation by apparently hiring a Washington, D.C. public relations firm. He has a very touch-and-go relationship, really, publicly at least, with the U.S., because in 2005, he was due to come on a visit, and his visa was actually revoked. Now, it was never really made clear why that happened, but the assumption was that because of his reputation and because of the violence that had taken place, that it wasn't seen as a good thing to invite a leader like that. The visa issue has never really been resolved. The U.S., uh, consul here doesn't really uh, comment on whether you know their policy has changed in that regard. But clearly, there's a huge amount of business between the U.S. and India, and clearly, a lot of that business is also in the state of Gujarat. General Motors has a plant there. There are tie-ups with Indian companies, and the potential for trade with India is huge. So it's not only a question about his leadership uh, in the state itself, but the idea of him possibly being a national leader is a, is a big, big issue here, a very timely one. It's a timely one. So then why is the, the cover story about Narendra Modi so controversial? Um, this, this latest edition, which features his face on the cover, why has it been so incendiary? And, and tell us just what the reaction's been. Well, I think it's incendiary because the man himself is incendiary. He represents both the potential for enormous progress here in India economically, etc. But he also represents some of the, well, at least in some people's minds, you know, the worst that this country has to offer in terms of the religious divide. So what does this controversy about this man's face on the cover of a magazine tell us about the current state of affairs between Hindus and Muslims in India? This is a country where, uh, you know, things are changing so fast economically, and yet Muslims, for example, remain some of the least developed in terms of their literacy, in terms of their earnings, in terms of their education. There's a real grassroots difference between the Muslim community and the majority Hindus. And to have a man like that who was tainted by his association with that violence is truly repugnant to a lot of people in this country. All right. Thank you very much. Correspondent Anu Anand, based in Delhi, telling us about the controversial Indian politician Narendra Modi. Nice to speak with you. Thank you very much. Three countries are in our GeoQuiz spotlight today. These are countries that are expected to send female athletes to the Summer Olympics for the first time. That could make London 2012 the first Olympic Games where all nations represented have at least one woman competing. 
New York Times reporter Mary Pallon has written about this potential watershed moment. Sounds kind of like Title IX coming to the Olympics, Mary. Which countries are expected at least to send women competitors for the first time this summer? Sure. So the three are Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Brunei. And those three countries, Brunei, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, are the answers to our geo-quiz. The surprise among the three, though, is Saudi Arabia. How come? Well, Saudi Arabia is the largest of those three and uh, therefore has the biggest potential pool of females who could compete. And I think it's gotten the most press in terms of some of the restrictions that women there face. So when we heard that they were you know, seriously pursuing this, it definitely uh, made our ears perk. Which sports will these women, if they do indeed go to the Olympics, let's say Saudi Arabia in particular, which sports will they be competing in? Well, it's unclear because the team has not been put together yet, but equestrian um, Dama Malhas, she won a bronze at the 2010 Youth Olympics. So she's um, definitely getting a lot of attention. Brunei has a sprinter who she does not run with a headscarf, I believe. She could be a contender. So again, those are the two areas I would look at, um, perhaps swimming or soccer, but we're still waiting. And that's just like with any country. It's going to be interesting to see who uh, who makes the cut. And often the Olympics, you know, they have programs with developing countries to let women um, or men compete that maybe aren't quite at the level or have the resources, but they want to be inclusive. And especially in a case like this where it's going to be so high profile, the IOC is going to let, you know, want these women to to be there. And the Saudi crown prince has said, yes, these female athletes can indeed compete in London this summertime as long as their sports meet the standards of women's decency. So in practice, in London, what will that mean? So in practice, that means that you'll probably see some athletes wearing the the headscarf or um, perhaps have more clothing, more covering than some of their counterparts from Western countries. Um, however, there are some women from uh, the Middle East who compete who do not wear headscarves. So I think it really depends on where they're from and kind of their personal preference. Are they sending women athletes to the Olympics begrudgingly uh, because they see this as the right time? Uh, Have they been under pressure? Right. I think there has been pressure. And I think, um, you know, I spoke with a a professor yesterday who said that she thinks that, you know, this isn't entirely tied to the Arab Spring, but I do think it's a proactive move on Saudi Arabia's part because it's a different era. And I think that women are going to expect and want different things in that country. And another person we spoke to said it's going to be hard to argue that a woman could be an Olympic champion, but not be behind the wheel. So, you know, yes. Because women were, yes, because normally at least women are not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. Exactly. So if you are on the more conservative end of the spectrum, yes, that will be a begrudging thing. But I do think that it's moving things a little bit towards the more moderate or more liberal policies in the sense of uh, women's inclusion. Are you going to be there yourself, Mary, at the Olympics? Yes, I will. And what are you going to look for, especially among these women competitors? I'm curious to see what the interaction among athletes is going to be and what these women will take back with them. Why does Uh, that interest you? You're thinking that that because there's bound to be a change? Because one would assume these women will be really under the spotlight and fairly carefully watched by uh, those in their country who want to make sure that they come back the way they left. Definitely. But I think that these people are going to be role models, right, in their country. So what is the story that they're going to tell the younger women? You know, what was difficult? What was easy? What the challenge? were what their experience was going to be because they're going to see these games in a very different light. I mean, they're not only going to be first, but there's going to be, there's already enough tension on athletes when they go to the Olympics, but these women are going to get even more so. What are they going to bring back to their country in terms of telling that story? I mean, I think it's going to be hard to watch these games and not be inspired. Hope we get to talk to you when you're at the Olympics in London. Definitely, definitely. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Me too. New York Times reporter Mary Pilon. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you so much.
And now for our GeoQuiz texting game medal ceremony. It was a grueling competition. But the bronze goes to Katie in Denver. Anu brings home a silver to Cupertino. And Giancarlo from San Antonio wins the virtual gold. You want to play too? Go ahead. Just text GeoQuiz, which is one word, GeoQuiz, to 69866. After you do that, check out the video of Saudi equestrian Dalma Rushdie Malhas clearing her jumps at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Austerity is a word most Greeks are tired of hearing. The Greek government has agreed to slash wages and pensions, thanks in part to pushing by the Eurozone partners. It's also cut public sector jobs and raised taxes. Even with all the cutting, the Greek economy is reeling. Still, there's one part of the Greek economy that's showing signs of life. That's the high-tech sector. From Athens, the world's Clark Boyd reports. It's Friday afternoon at an upscale cafe here in Athens. Young entrepreneurs and investors mingle over coffee. There's talk of things like angel investing and intellectual property. It's a scene that would be familiar in Silicon Valley, but not here in Greece. For decades now, young, bright Greeks have chosen safe, public-sector jobs, or they've left Greece's business-stifling bureaucracy behind to pursue their ideas somewhere else. But in a building on the outskirts of Athens, things are changing. Now, what we have here... This is Coralia, the Hellenic Technology Clusters Initiative. Vasilios Makios, one of the founders, is proudly showing off high-tech products designed by Greek engineers. Three projects of almost ten companies and ten universities. Makios got the idea for Coralia after teaching in Canada and the United States. He saw the success of high-tech entrepreneurs there and he wanted to bring what he calls that passion for creation back to Greece. I realized that the only way for Greece coming out of misery would be to create the concept of entrepreneurs in 5, 10, 15 people coming together. So a few years back, Makios teamed up with two other Greeks with a lot of experience in the tech sector. They went to the Greek government with the idea of starting a high-tech cluster. Clustering is an idea from Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter. And it's pretty simple. Put ambitious high-tech startups in the same building, and they begin learning from and feeding off of each other. It's worked in places like the Bay Area, London, and Singapore. And, Macchio says, it could play a role in turning Greece's economy around. This clustering will create a small, but I would say positive Silicon Valley in Greece where Greece can gain an international acclaim. Coralia started with a microelectronics cluster of 13 companies. Now it has dozens of them. One of them is Constellex, which makes technologies that help fiber optic networks extend their reach. The company was really a no-brainer for us. Stratos Kehayas co-founded Constellex. He sits in a small office in the Coralia building, surrounded by computers and electronic equipment. I ask him why he and his business partner didn't leave the country like so many others. Because it's our home. We feel at home here and we wanted to, to build something, to build something in our country, to build a, a company, to grow, and then to offer something back to the local community. Okay, but what about the business climate here in Greece? For sure, the bureaucracy is higher. You, you start off with a certain handicap. But this is something you deal with it, you accept it, and you put it in your business plan and your everyday running of the company. And to be honest, it definitely also gives you an ability, and this ability is to adapt.
Coralia itself is a nonprofit. It offers startups like Constellex, office space, high-speed internet, and teleconferencing. Experts are on hand to advise companies about patenting, accounting practices, and managing a staff. Greek economist and venture capitalist Aristos Doxiadis likes the Coralia idea, but he offers a reality check. One problem we have in Greece, it's a cultural problem. It's, it's pretty hard for us to cooperate on a productive basis, on a long-term basis, to form teams where there are no free riders, for example, or where nobody breaks the rules for their own individual interest. It's not ingrained in Greek society, this culture of cooperation. But the startups I spoke with at Coralia say that mentality is starting to change here in Greece. Director Vasilios Makios says two new clusters have already started one for aerospace, and another for gaming. Now we will become five or ten Coralias, and then there will be a revolution of the young people because it's to their, I would say, future to see that there are other ways than going in the public sector. There's no reason, Makios adds, that the same idea can't work for other areas of the Greek economy. Why not have a biotech cluster, he asks, or even a cluster of Greek wine growers? We can brand it all made in Greece, he says with a smile, and make it a global standard. The question remains, though, whether the made in Greece brand is now too tarnished to be attractive. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Athens. You can read more about Greek geeks making good in Clark's latest BBC column. It's at theworld.org. The Russian band called Pussy Riot has gotten a lot of attention recently for its flamboyant rhetoric against Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin and for stunts such as holding a guerrilla concert in Moscow's largest cathedral. Many see the band as indicative of Russia's current political upheaval. So perhaps the choice to represent Russia in this year's Eurovision Song Contest could be seen as Russians' desire for a little calm. As Jessica Gallagher reports, a group of grandmothers beat out a famous pop star and nearly two dozen others. A tuba band at cake and hugs all around as the remote village of Buranova gives a hero's welcome to its newly minted celebrities. Until a few days ago, few people had heard of the little place in Russia's Udmurtia region. The Buranovsky Babushki, the Buranova grannies, took the Russian capital by storm, winning the country's place at Eurovision, the world's biggest song contest. The eight ladies beat 24 other contestants and previous Eurovision winner, the pop star Dima Balan. The Babushka's average age is 75, and they won over the judges with Party for Everybody, a catchy tune in Udbert in English. At Russia's Eurovision tryout, spectators clapped and danced along as the Babushkas did their shuffle on stage. Their traditional red, green, and white costumes and birch bark shoes were also a huge hit with the fans. This woman, Victoria, says the grannies deserve to win because they represent the real Russia. The grannies spend the day doing chores like checking on the goats. Then they head off in the evening to the local community center for rehearsals. Their aim? To perfect their catchy tune. Zoya Dorodova says they're excited that they're going to represent Russia at Eurovision, but they're also nervous. She says, of course we're scared. We're shaking. She says, we're worried about the concert. She says, it's scary. My heart is shivering. The grandmas will be competing for the gray vote against Engelbert Humperdinck, who won the U.K. entry. The British balladeer is 75, but his age isn't slowing him down either. The ladies say if they win, they'll use their prize money to help build a church in their village of 650 people. 
Even if they don't win, Granny Galina Kanyeva says the group has already gotten something out of their act. She says we want to have a longer life. They say those who move, who sing, they live longer. Eurovision will take place in Baku, Azerbaijan in late May. Whether protesters will still be on the streets here in Russia is anyone's guess. But at a time of political conflict and uncertainty, maybe a little grandmotherly kitsch is just what's needed to bring people together. For The World, I'm Jessica Gallagher in Moscow. The Baranova Grannies bring our program to a close today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI, Public Radio International.